Good morning. It is so good that you could be at Central Church today. We're so glad that you can be with us. We're in this sermon series called Soils, and we'll be talking about that in a minute. But let me remind you again, spiritual renewal begins in two weeks. And that is, uh, another name for that is revival. I guess we used to call it revival. That starts in two weeks. James Hayward is going to be our speaker. He's a pastor of an answering church in Virginia, a church about our size, very good speaker. And John Nicholas, who has led worship for us during other spiritual renewals, he's going to be with us too. Every night, it's at, well, Sunday night, it's at 6 o'clock and the, during Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 5.30 dinner, free dinner, no cost whatsoever. You can come for that if that will help you out. And then 6.30 is the service time. So that begins in two weeks. Well, today we are in, we've been working our way through one of the Jesus' most familiar parables. Sometimes it's called the parable of the sower. Uh, we're referring to it as the parable of the soils because Jesus talks about four different soils. And in that, this parable, just to bring you up to speed, if you missed the last couple of weeks, next week we'll conclude it. But if you've missed the last couple of weeks, just to remind you, the parable, the seed is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The soils are various types of people, how they receive the gospel. And the sower is Jesus or, or us now, the ones who proclaim that gospel or share that good news of Jesus Christ. So the four types of soil. Two weeks ago, we began this series. And the, the first type is the pathway people. People who have been hardened by life or hardened by others who are not receptive to the gospel message at all. And we talked about how we don't want to be that, that way. That Really, the, uh, the hardening of our heart can happen to any of us if we allow it. And we said, we don't want to be that way. We don't want to be hard people. And, the, and in Jesus' story, the, the birds come along and, and eat up the seed and flies away. It just never penetrates. We don't want to be that kind of person. Then last week, when I was gone, uh, Pastor Tyler preached on the rocky soil people. And rocky soil people are shallow. They have no roots. So they, they may, may uh, accept Jesus, they may get all excited, but they have no roots. And so, so when trouble comes, when problems come, and I've got bad news for you, troubles come to all of us at some point or another. And when troubles come or storms come or problems come, those rocky soil people with no roots, they get scorched by the sun, they get burnt, they die off. We don't want to be that kind of person. Now next week we're going to talk about the good soil. That's what we all want to be, right? We want to be the good soil. We want to be the top soil, the soil that's productive, the 160, 30-fold soil. Yeah, that next week is going to be a fun week. We're going to talk about being good soil. Woohoo! But this week, this week we're talking about the thorny soil, the weedy soil. Ah, well, let's read it. This is a, you, you've heard this already, Matthew chapter 13, this is a story that Jesus told. A farmer went out to sow his seed, he, as he was gathering, scattering his seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up, and some fell on rocky places, Pastor Tyler preached last week, where it did not have much soil, it sprang up quickly, but because the soil was shallow, when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they were withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, that's where we are today. It grew up. And choked the plants. Still other seed fell on the good soil next week. Where it produced a crop 160, 30 times what had been sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Then in verse 22, later in the same chapter, Jesus explains exactly what thorny soil people are. This is what he says. The one who has received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, 
But the worries of this life, if you had your Bible and you were underlining, that's what you'd want to underline. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. According to Jesus, there's two problems in the thorny soil. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth. You know it. Folks who get fixated on the worries of this old life. People who, there's plenty of things to worry about today. In there, there's a lot of things going on in our world that you can worry about. And the folks that get fixated on those problems and those worries and they watch the news channel that just uh, uh, reminds them of those problems and those worries 24-7 and they, and they get online and all their friends are worrying about all the problems in the world and they're fixated on the problems, the problems, the problems, oh, there's problems, this, that, the other thing. Ah, ah. Instead of looking to the one who can defeat those giants. Instead of looking to the ultimate problem solver, Jesus Christ. We need to be a little bit more like David, right? When, when facing Goliath, everybody's saying, Ah, that giant is too big to kill. And David said, Ah, he's too big to miss. Are you kidding me? And I could throw it a mile away and I'd still hit him. We need to look to the problem solver, not the problems Get our eyes fixed on Jesus. So those who are concerned and overcome by the worries of this life or the deceitfulness of wealth. Folks who are so worried about the 403B or 401K or IRA or blah, blah, blah. What did Jesus say? What does the prophet of man to gain the whole world? But lose your soul. Think about it, Jesus would say. Think about it. What's important in life? Those thorns, those thorns, those areas that the soil where, where the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth consume us, it leaves us unproductive. Well, I tried to think who in the Bible is the best example of someone living in the thorny, thorny soil. Who in the Bible best is the best example, the poor example, of someone who is consumed by the worries of this life with the deceitfulness of wealth. I suppose there's plenty of candidates. There are 3,237 people uh, mentioned in the Bible. 3,237 different people. So who of those 3,237 people mentioned in the Bible best exemplifies someone in the thorny soil? And I thought about it and I thought, well, maybe that would be Judas, right? He sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe it's Judas. But 30 pieces of silver really isn't that much money. Uh, you know, it's not like you're going to be buying a mansion on the, on the Mediterranean with 30 pieces of silver. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think money was Judas's problem. You know, maybe whatever, but it wasn't money. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira. Remember their story? Terrible story in, in, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a field. They said it was the whole amount that they were giving to the church. It wasn't the whole amount. It was part of the amount. They wanted glory for themselves. And, you know, plop, plop. That was a terrible story. <laughs> we're moving into a generosity season here in a little bit. Let me just give you a secret. You give what you want to give and don't give what you don't want to give. Just don't lie about it because plop, plop. We don't want any of that here. Oh, my land. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what all was going on. Maybe it was the deceitfulness of wealth. It seemed like it was more about glory for themselves. I don't know what was happening with them. Then there is Demas. Remember Demas? Poor Demas. Demas was a friend of Paul's, a co-worker with Paul. He did everything with Paul. He was, you know, Demas was, 
was on fire. And then, and then, and then, in Second, in Second Timothy, Paul writes this, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What in the world is in Thessalonica? Ah, why would Demas leave? Was it deceitfulness of wealth? Was it the cares of this old world? I don't know. No, I don't think Demas is our guy. Who best exemplifies someone living in the weeds? I think to get that answer, you've got to go all the way back to the Old Testament. I think our prime suspect is in the Old Testament. And here's your Old Testament history lesson real quick. You remember the, the children of Israel, they were slaves for 400 years, right? Crying out for God to rescue them. And finally, uh, slaves in Egypt. And finally, 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 God heard their cries. He heard their cries. And he sent a guy named Moses to go and rescue them. And you know the story. Wrote, Moses went to Pharaoh, let my people go, and eventually let them go. And it should have been, it should have been a hop, skip, and a jump into the promised land. It wasn't that far. But the people were whiners and complainers. And you remember the story for instead of hop, skipping, and jumping into the land of milk and honey, they were wandering around the wilderness for 40 years until they all died off except for, except for Joshua and Caleb. But during those 40 years, God was talking to the people. It wasn't that God left them alone. They were wandering in the wilderness, but God was still speaking to them. And he was talking to them about what would happen when they got into the promised land. And so if you go back, and, he, and, and he's talking about when they get there, when they finally get there, they're going to want a king. And when they, and when they get the king, and, and having a king is kind of, well, in, in, where am I at? Deuteronomy 17, God says this. This is while they're wandering in the wilderness. God says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and taken possession of it, settled in it, you will say, let us have a king over us like all the other nations around. Now, having a king was kind of a good news, bad news kind of proposition. Uh, the good news was, you know, they'd gone into the promised land. They had conquered it, the land flowing with milk and honey. You know, and now they're wanting to set up, you know, normal life. Uh, uh, I don't know, park and recs department, trash pickup on Tuesdays, maybe a community swimming pool. They're ready for, you know, normal life. They said, and we're going to want a king. You're going to want a king. You're going to want to be like everybody else. So that was kind of the, the, they'd settled in. That was the good news. The bad news was... Sometimes kings aren't just. And sometimes kings can lead a nation astray. If you know your Old Testament, you know that's exactly what happens. And sometimes kings can just be a real problem. So having a king is kind of a good news, bad news kind of deal. And so in Deuteronomy 17, God tells them, all right, you're going to want a king. And here's the danger. Here's the danger of of what will, will be a problem if you have a king. Verse 16 the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. King's going to want horses. What's wrong with horses? Is God not like Trigger or Seabiscuit or Secretariat or I'm trying to think of all the famous horses? Mr. Ed? <laughs> God not like Mr. Ed? Who doesn't like the horse? A horse, of course, of course. That's not the issue. The issue is, is military strength. Horses meant military strength. Up until then, the people are relying on God Almighty, right? They're not relying on them. They'd been slaves. None of them were soldiers. They'd been slaves. And so, so, so God is saying, listen, when you get in the land and you conquer the land, what king is going to want to be, he's going to want more and more horses, more military strength. And they're going to rely on, on that military strength rather than me. Remember, even after they went in, when they first went into Canaan, remember the book of Judges? They didn't have kings. They had judges. They also had enemies. 
And the book of Judges is kind of a bizarre book. It's a crazy book, all sorts of crazy stories in it. But the one thing you'll notice in that book of Judges is while they didn't have, you know, standing army like they would later have, when an enemy arose, God would rise up somebody like a, like a Gideon. And they wouldn't have tanks and bazookas. What did Gideon use to defeat the Midianites? Jars and trumpets. You know, and he whittled it down to just a couple hundred soldiers, jars and trumpets. No way should they have won. No way in the world should they have beaten the Midianites. But guess what they did? Why? Because they were trusting on God Almighty. Remember Samson. How did Samson defeat the Philistines? Man, he pushed down the walls of the, of the temple. How did he do that? Well, not on his own. God Almighty. And so God is saying, when you get, in, when you get into the land and you get a king... He's going to want to have horses. He's going to want to have a military complex. And, and that military complex means he's going to rely on that military strength rather than me. That's a problem. Second thing he says, the king's going to want, verse, verse 17, he must take on many wives for himself or his heart will be led astray. Now that's not saying, ah, hubba, 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 the king's going to want some women. Ah. That's not what the point was. The point is, uh, well, this is how it worked in the Old Testament days. A, a strong king from a strong nation would be, you know, flexing his muscles. Well, a weak king from a weak nation would go to that strong king and say, Hey, let's be friends, Mr. Strong King. Let's be pals. Let's sign a treaty. In fact, let's be, let's be better than friends. Let's be family. I'm going to give you a, a daughter of mine to be your wife. And, and, and the weak king from the weak country is thinking, Oh, yeah. If, I mean, he won't attack us. We're family now. You know, he wouldn't attack his father-in-law. We're family. And so the weak king from the weak nation would give a daughter to the strong king from the strong nation. The problem with that is that it was signing treaties. And the problem with that was in these, these wives from these pagan, pagan countries would be coming in and bringing their pagan, pagan gods and would be influencing the king to their pagan, pagan ways. Don't take on too many wives. Don't sign too many treaties. That's what that's about. So a king's going to want horses. king's going to want wives. Verse 17, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Uh, how does a king accumulate large amounts of silver and gold? Usually on the backs of his subjects. That's the problem. That's how you get gold and silver when you're the king. It's on the backs of your subjects. That's, that's what happens. And then, verse, and, then, and then the fourth thing that a king's going to want, don't turn your attention to Egypt. Verse 16, or make your people return to Egypt to get more for them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. You must never return to Egypt. What was that? It wasn't, this isn't a question of geography. It's not that God hates Egypt for crying out loud, you know. He was saying, don't go back to the ways of Egypt. Don't go back. Remember, you were in Egypt. And what was Egypt like? They were oppressors. They, they didn't care about the widows and the orphans and the aliens. Don't be like Egypt. Don't be like Egypt who had a, who had a pharaoh who thought he was God. Don't be like Egypt. Don't go back to the ways of Egypt. Remember, I told you before, it was much easier for Moses to get the people out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of the people. They'd been there for 400 years. And they had all those other gods Really, a, a great example of that is back in Exodus 22. Again, while they're wandering, uh, God reminds them in 22:21 about the ways of Egypt. He says this, Don't mistreat an alien or oppress him as you were aliens in Egypt. 
Do not take advantage of widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, your children become fathers. He's saying, if you forget the, the orphan and the widow, if you mistreat them, guess what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn your family into a family of widows and orphans. That's the point that, that he's making here. He's, he's saying, don't be like Egypt. Don't be the oppressor. Don't be those that don't care about the least of these. Don't be like Egypt. So the advice for a king, when you get to the promised land, you're going to want a king. And the king's going to want too many horses and too many wives and too much gold and they're going to want to turn back to Egypt. So, okay, what happens? They go into the promised land. They conquer the promised land. Land flowing of milk and honey. Things are going well. Everything's great. What happens? Just exactly what God said would happen. We want a king. We want a king. We want a king. And so who do they get? They get King Saul. Now, if this was a melodrama, I'd have a big blue sign that I would hold up for you. I should have put blue on my Bible. Put a big blue sign up there, and I'd say King Saul, and I'd hold it up, and you'd go, boo, because Saul was a lousy king. He was strong, he was tall, he was good looking, but he was a lousy king. <laughs> Picking a king based on his looks is a bad way to pick the king. But they have, so they have King Saul. Boo, King Saul, lousy king, ends bad for King Saul. Who follows him? David. Only a boy named David, only a rippling brook, only a boy named David, but five little stones he took. David, yay, David. <sighs> David had some victories for sure. But David, 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 you know, he had an affair. He murdered Uriah. David had his bad moments too. And who followed him? Solomon. Solomon's our guy. Remember? Weeds. Cares of this world. Deceitfulness of wealth. Solomon. Solomon is exhibit A. And someone who allows the cares of this world, deceitfulness of wealth, to come into their life. You see it, if you flip your Bible over to 1 Kings chapter 9, talks about Solomon. Verse 15 says this. Here is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon constricted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, and the supporting terraces, and the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazar, and Medegido, and Gezer. That's a lot of building, right? Temple, palace, terraces, wall around Jerusalem, Hazar, Megiddo. That's a lot of building. That's a lot of building. That's a lot of work that's going on. And there's a word in there. Did you notice that word? There's a word in there. There's another name for forced labor. What is it? It's on the tip of my tongue. Forced labor, not pastoral staff. They may, they may that's not it. They may think so sometimes. That's not Slaves. He's using slaves to build the temple of God. Is that a little ironic to you? The one who says to care for the weak and the least of these, the one who says, make sure you pay attention. He's using slaves over and over. Read, you know, in Exodus as they're wandering around in the wilderness. In Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, God over and over says, don't act like Egypt. What are they doing? They're acting like Egypt. Hello, McFly, hello. Flip over, flip over to chapter 10 tells us a little bit more about Solomon. Verse 14. 
The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 beckas of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold and three minas of gold in each shield. And the king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. And the throne had six steps and on the back had rounded top and on both sides of the seat were, of, were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one on either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. Ah, P-U, silver. Ah, that's garbage. Silver. Oh, it's so passe. It's so King Saul. No, we want gold, gold, lots and lots of gold. You know, numbers are big in the Bible, right? You know that. Number, number 12... 12 disciples, 12 tribes. Uh, number seven, considered the perfect number, days of creation. Number seven, big number. What's the worst number? Yeah, we all know that. Six, six, six. Did you notice how much gold that Solomon was getting every single year, every year, year in, year out? 666 talents. Now, either the scale was broken because, you know, every year it came out to be the same exact number, 666 talents of gold, or it was an amazing coincidence that every single year it came out to 666 talents of gold, or the author of First Kings is trying to tell us something. And I think it's option C. He's saying, listen, this is what... You want to know how far Solomon has fallen? Every single year, 666 talents of gold. Remember what God had said? Not too many, too much gold. Let's read on. Verse, verse 26. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses which he kept in chariot cities and also with them in Jerusalem. He had chariot cities. He didn't have barns and garages. Did you see that? He has chariot cities. He has so many horses, he needs to have chariot cities. He's building a military complex like had not been seen ever before. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore trees in the footholds. Solomon's horses were imported from, uh-oh, Egypt and from Q and the royal merchants purchased them from Q they imported the chariots from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150 they exported them all from the kings of the Hittites and the Armenians Solomon is doing everything that God said not to do too many horses too much gold turning back to Egypt and you all know about all of his wives and concubines. Everybody knows that. It's a sad commentary. My prayer for you is that you would allow yourself to be molded and shaped by Jesus. That you would not allow this old world 
or the stuff of this world or the things of this world to harden you, to trample you, to keep you in that hard, cold place. But rather, you would allow God Almighty to come and shape you. Melt me, make me soft, mold me, fill me, use me. But he begins by melt me, make me soft, put me in your arms. The prophet, the prophet Ezekiel said, said this, quoting God, I will give you a heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone that old hard heart and give you a heart of flesh.